This is Monday Morning QB, August 17, 2020. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, Pan-Africanism and Black August, the new Black History Month, fair housing and the presidential campaign, getting it right for our school children this fall, and the voices of Monday Morning QB's youth contingent. All that, and we are in our summer membership drive. Our goal today is $500. Won't you please help us reach that goal with your contribution now? Call 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or go online to WPFWFM.org. But please, please donate now and stay with us. The day after Joe Biden announced his running mate is Kamala Harris, President Trump tweeted, quote, the suburban housewife will be voting for me because they want safety and a thrill that I ended the long-running program where low-income housing would invade their neighborhood. The tweet is part of Trump's effort to shore up his weak polling numbers with white suburban women using racist and classist scare tactics. And it's clear that nothing as inconvenient as the truth will get in his way. Sue Goodwin reports. The long-running program Trump refers to in last week's tweet actually dates back only five years. It's called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Provision. It was enacted by the Obama administration in 2015 as a way to strengthen the 1968 Fair Housing Act. That law prohibits most forms of housing discrimination, and calls for HUD grantees to affirmatively undertake actions to overcome historic patterns of segregation and promote fair housing choice. But there really wasn't a mechanism in place to make sure that happened. Even without widespread acts of intentional discrimination, many neighborhoods still remained segregated, with some communities less likely to have access to good schools, health care, and public programs necessary to help citizens rise out of poverty. Prentice Allen Dantzler is an urban studies professor at Georgia State University. His research centers on how neighborhoods change and how communities and policymakers respond to those changes. He explains the thinking behind the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. Yeah, so part of the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule is that it's pretty much a legal requirement that federal agencies and federal grantees actively address and work to eliminate housing discrimination and segregation. It has been in the Fair Housing Act since 1968, but prior to the 2015 regulation, there was no kind of effective accountability system for any of the HUD grantees, right? So while legally we kind of outlaw different forms of discrimination, within practice, we see that they still carry forward. Time and time again, there's different ways that low-income, but particularly low-income communities of color, have been dealing with discrimination in housing policy. The rule requires cities and towns that receive federal funding to examine local housing policies and patterns that can keep residents from the neighborhood of their choice and contribute to disparities in wealth and opportunity between neighborhoods, even policies that on the surface appear to be race-neutral. Historically, because there's such a great intersection of race and class, you don't need to say that Black people can't live here anymore. But if you know that Black people of particular lower income groups need to rent, then you can zone out rental housing and in effect exclude Black people of lower incomes from gaining access to your communities. Under the Obama administration's rule, once a grantee identifies the actual barriers to creating more inclusive communities and improving access to opportunity, they then set up a locally designed plan to overcome those barriers. It would be a mistake to think that Trump's recent tweeting is simply his newest campaign ploy. Obama's fair housing rule has been under attack since the Trump administration began, and we can thank Ben Carson for that. In a 2015 op-ed in the Washington Times, Carson labeled the rule as a mandated social engineering scheme and an example of failed socialism. 
In January 2018, under the direction of now Secretary Carson, HUD announced it would be delaying enforcement of the rule for almost three years. In August of 2018, had announced it was moving away from the Obama administration's version of affirmatively furthering fair housing and would be proposing its own version. All this fell relatively low on the radar until it became clear that white suburban voters are critical to winning the White House. So, on July 23rd, Carson announced that HUD will formally terminate the rule. Not long after, Trump boasted about the decision and up to the ante, tweeting that suburbanites will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood and that crime will go down. Where to begin? First of all, Trump is clearly asserting that affordable housing comes at a financial cost to the suburban homeowner. Prentice Dantzler explains what's wrong with this kind of thinking. There is this kind of legacy or this historical understanding that affordable housing and public housing has some type of effect on property values within suburban communities. But there's been a long history of scholars and researchers debunking that myth, right? So there's actually a new paper that just came out from a group at Rutgers, New Brunswick, looking at community land trust, which is an affordable housing style for home ownership and rentals. And what they found is that when you cluster some of the community land trusts together, you actually saw increases in how property values. So there's a lot of kind of this myth about low income or affordable housing having some type of impact on property values. And for homeowners, you know, they're protecting their wealth, right? Homeownership is the number one way that people build wealth in this country. So for a lot of people, regardless of their intentional kind of racial biases, they may go along with excluding different types of affordable housing because they think it may have an effect on their property values. But there's a lot of research debunking that myth. And what about crime? Can we really say that crime goes up when affordable housing enters the neighborhood? No, not at all. There's actually a bunch of recent research. There's a group at Princeton, Douglas Massey, and some others that were looking at affordable housing being built in some of those New Jersey kind of suburban areas. And they interviewed homeowners within those areas as well. And a lot of the people in those neighborhoods didn't even know that those units were affordable housing, right? So like the stark character of like, Historically, public housing, where these tall brick and mortar approaches, these brick buildings with very small windows, that's not what affordable housing looks like today. So I think a lot of the times people don't even know if there's affordable housing in their actual neighborhoods. So there's no reason to believe that neighborhood crime levels are going up when new, newer, lower income um, housing is being built. But just as the myth that affordable housing will drive surrounding property values down persists without evidence, so does the myth that affordable housing will drive up crime. But yeah, there's still this kind of myth that there's something problematic about low-income communities of color, and it, it, it fits into this long history of seeing these communities as deviant, as something starkly different in kind of American culture, which is problematic in and of themselves and tends to kind of reproduce from these racist tropes, equating low-income and people of color with crime and deviance. Joe Biden's campaign says Biden would reinstate Obama's rule on fair housing, which is in part why Trump claims that if Biden is elected, he will somehow destroy the suburbs. But even among some fair housing advocates, there are skeptics who believe that the rule sets the bar too low and that more aggressive federal action needs to be taken to ensure fair housing. Precious Dantzler understands that position, though he still believes the rule has its place. I think if we leave it to their own devices, municipalities are really focused on generating revenue at the end of the day. And we've seen historically that they're not really worried about the low-income population. So, yeah, I do think that you should keep this rule in place so you could actually have some type of legislation for local community groups to fight for when they have issues of disparate impact. Dantzler also argues that fair housing policy needs to go further. For example, HUD needs to expand its focus beyond homeowners and strengthen protections for renters. Buying a home and home ownership has been the, the, the number one way that HUD has been really focusing on, where we need to realize that everybody's not going to be a homeowner. So we need protections, particularly for tenants. Along those lines, Prentice Dantzler argues for a federal minimum of at least 30 days before an eviction notice can be served. In addition, federal law should require municipalities to build housing that's appropriate for their actual income levels. 
right? So we know that different municipalities only build maybe market rate or high luxury condos or apartment buildings or housing that nobody can afford unless you're making on the higher end of the income stream where you should require municipalities to actually build housing based on the population that they currently have and not planning for a future population that's only of higher income earners. As for the affirmatively furthering fair housing provision, Prentice Dantzler would like to see it get stronger. Right, so you actually put some more teeth into this AFSH rule. If HUD has all the data to tell you if, if there's a disparate impact on housing at the local level, then after you find that out, right, give, give municipalities a certain amount of time to do a report and actually require them to make plans to change that report and have, have accountability measures from restricting HUD grants from municipalities if they don't address it within a certain amount of time. So you should actually do something versus just calling for a report for local municipalities, actually force them to do something about it. Prentice Allen Dantzler is an urban studies professor at Georgia State University. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Cannot help but have noticed there's a national debate taking place about how to best educate school children this fall as the coronavirus pandemic rages. On Saturday, WPFW and WBAI, with the strong support of the Washington Teachers Union, broadcast a four-hour national town hall, Getting It Right, Reopening Our Nation's Schools. It featured American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten, Melissa Harris-Perry, Dr. Reed Tuxens, April Goggins, Dr. Melissa Clark, parents, teachers from Maryland to Florida to Michigan, to right here in the district where Elizabeth Davis is president of the Washington Teachers Union. Where here she discusses the digital divide and how that affects children in classrooms and in at-home learning environments. Which has become now a a three-way school system with the onset of privatization and charters. But the digital divide is not just a matter of money. It's not just an issue of funds. It is also, due to the pandemic, an issue of civil rights. When we talk about the need, this we are living in an information age where our students and teachers are required to be able to access information online. So it's a given that is imperative for teachers and students to have access to digital devices and Wi-Fi. When we closed due to the pandemic, our teachers surveyed their students to discover that 35% of our students were without Wi-Fi, without computers at home. Over 47,000 households in DC did not have access to Wi-Fi. And for us to continue on, and of course, this time period in which we're reopening for 100% distance learning is the time for us to get it right. Our teachers do not want to reopen our schools with the challenges and constraints that many of our students and families face and many of the challenges and constraints that teachers face, being able, not being able to engage with their students. But we also want to talk a little bit, Askia, about the responsibility of our school district leaders. And of course, I don't want to get a, a, a headache from talking about our national leadership, but our local leadership in terms of uh, the funding that is provided in order to address those issues related to COVID. Our schools have been underfunded for decades in DC, underfunded uh, because they have not managed to keep up with the cost of living uh, that the city has encountered. So the COVID, COVID-19 has basically magnified a lot of those inequities, but they've always been there. Uh, and I'm hoping that what we, what we refer to is going back to the norm. Uh, the norm for many families was not good. So we don't want to go back to that. One of them is some of the inequities that we've experienced. We want to fix that and do it in a sustainable way. And we want our city leaders and our school district leaders to become advocates for our public school system of right. The digital divide is, is like I said, and of course, Grace, who I'm glad to see is on this panel, has done amazing work around this. What I'm looking forward to is in working with Grace and other organizations and building a coalition very similar to the one in Baltimore, a coalition of over 50 organizations to address the issue of the digital divide. Because when we really think about it, 
all of our students, those students who are unable to access learning online, when we think about the achievement gap that exists nationally and here in DC, one that has grown over the past 10 years, quadrupled actually, basically correlates to an opportunity gap. When you think about access to opportunities for students, black and brown and poor students, many of them who have been marginalized in schools that have been under-resourced, underfunded, and in some cases, it appears as if it has been absolutely intentional as a way of what I've observed in D.C. over the past four decades as an educator is a school system that has basically been starved of resources, punished with the high stakes testing and closed. So what we have now in D.C., when I joined the ranks of teaching in D.C., there were 157 public schools. There are now 113 and declining. So we've got to look at privatization. When we look at the funding from our national leaders, from our secretary of education, the focus of where those funds should go, we don't want our city's objectives and goals to align with those of uh, our national leaders. But the digital divide, and of course, you're going to hear more about that from Grace and other panelists. That is a major focus for the WTU during this time, along with addressing a number of other issues, such as the funding that is needed to address COVID-related matters, PPE in our schools. And of course, parents and teachers in this school district over the past 10 years or longer do not simply trust the words from our city and school district leaders. We want to see evidence that those safety protocols that need to be instituted in accordance with CDC, this DC Health, Aussie, are going to actually be in place when we ask our students and teachers to return to the building. WPFW is involved in our summer membership drive, and we'd like to ask you to become a member, to be a supporter, to be a contributor to WPFW to be a contributor during Monday Morning QB. Every membership drive, our support has grown thanks to listeners like you. And so now our goal, $500, is certainly within reach if you will contribute now. We've had some wonderful guests over the year. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. Ibram X. Kendi, whom we see all over everywhere talking about being an anti-racist. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, and many, many more. Please remember how WPFW, how Monday Morning QB has raised these issues and raised your consciousness about things, some of which you're concerned about and already know about, some of which will come as a surprise. But please help us continue this work, this journalism that we do on Monday Morning QB with your contribution. A $40 gift will get you a WPFW face mask with Jazz and Justice WPFW all over it so you can proudly show that you are a supporter of 89.3 FM. 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739. Support Monday Morning QB. Support WPFW right now. The troubling times in which we find ourselves have inspired many remarkable responses. People helping people. It's grown into a national movement called Mutual Aid, where folks have joined together without governments or major corporations to provide services like grocery delivery, medicine delivery, and other concrete assistance to help overcome pre-existing inequalities. Dean Spade is an associate professor at the Seattle University School of Law, and founder of the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. And he's one of the pioneers of the mutual aid movement in the United States. It's not new um, at all. Mutual aid is a word that, a, a term that I mostly use to mean um, when people get together to do work to address immediate survival needs with a shared understanding that the systems in place aren't meeting those needs or are actually making things worse for people. So, in a lot of ways, it's something people kind of very naturally come together and do during big disasters. We often see a lot of coverage of mutual aid that happens when there's big storms or flooding or fires or disasters like the pandemic where people 
need a lot of help from each other to get by. But mutual aid is, is something people have been doing, um, you know, all across time to, uh, to support each other. And when, you know, when we, we have a name for it now because we live under systems that actually tell us to be really separate from each other and to not help each other out. So it becomes a radical act to do. Um, in the world we live in. But I think probably the most famous um, examples of mutual aid in recent U.S. history, the one people always point to is the Black Panther Party's survival programs in which people were, of course, feeding each other breakfast, uh, doing health programs, doing a free ambulance program, like doing all of these programs to say, like, look, you know, white society excludes black people from the basic things needed to survive, endangers black people's lives, and um, black people can give each other the things that they need to survive. And that's an act of power and solidarity and community building and actually radicalism. It's a way to build a shared analysis about the systems folks are living under and say, let's push back together. And tons and tons of other movements, not just the black liberation movement have done mutual aid for the same reasons. It's often the ways people get involved in movements first is through mutual aid projects. Like they are coming together to help people get safe abortions or, um, you know, deal with their landlords and deal with evictions or, uh, helping each other out on this, on the, on the, um, on the strike lines when they're fighting against their employer. All of these kind of survival needs things can be, you know, can be an are tied to the bigger push to get rid of the problem itself. Why don't we hear more about mutual aid efforts? Well, that's a great question. I think that one of the things that happens in our society is that we hear a narrative about social change that really lifts up the role of elite. So we hear a narrative that says, if you want change, you got to get a court decision that you win, or you've got to pass something through a legislature, or, you know, it's always about kind of what the important people can do in the halls of power. And so a lot of movements that have actually been won by, you know, millions of people being mobilized on the ground get retold as movements that were won because of a court decision or a law being passed. So like an example that people often use is the Montgomery bus boycott. That boycott it's so amazing because it's like, you know, so many people coming together to say we're going to meet our own transportation needs instead of um, engaging with this transportation system that we all need to boycott because it's racist and because it included all the sexual harassment of black women and all these other reasons, right? And so, like, the way that that incredible moment in, in U.S. history and the kind of pushback against white supremacy here was was one and what it took, we often ignore the part which was like the massive labor of like tons and tons of ordinary people. It wasn't just people who gave important speeches or, you know, governments that eventually concede and change the law. Um, and so I think that's kind of typical. So I think mutual aid is like kind of often the missing piece of the story that actually makes the whole story make more sense um, about how people got into movements, why they stayed, how they helped each other survive while they are fighting their fight. Um, and I think that partly that's often because we erase the labor of women and a lot of mutual aid work is done by women or is kind of the work we see as women's work, like taking care of people and making sure people have what they need is in our society is, you know, often the least compensated work or the least valued work. I think that's part of the reason maybe we don't hear people name the mutual aid pieces of um, social movement work as often as we should. We get the impression that people today are so much more individualistic than in the days when folks... I'll build, help you build your barn. You help me build my barn next month. You know, it's sort of like I got mine, you got yours to get. Exactly. I, I agree. And I think that in some ways our internet society has actually made, our internet practices have actually been making that worse because not only is it that we tend to help each other out less, but we, people are spend a lot of their time being concerned about being seen to look like they've got a certain kind of solidarity politics or a certain kind of, position on something rather than getting to actually dig their hands in and do something with others about that. So I think that's one thing that people are really pushing back on right now during the pandemic in a way that I think is quite, has a lot of potential for radical change is people are really digging in and helping each other out and forming grocery delivery and medicine delivery networks in their um, communities and raising money for particular kinds of workers who are left out of the already inadequate relief systems. Um, that kind of stuff allows people to begin to practice what they believe in and practice helping each other out and practice building a new world instead of just kind of branding themselves as people who have those interests or thinking that all they're allowed to worry about is like their own paycheck or their own housing. And I think that that's very enlivening to people and makes us all a lot safer and more connected and also makes us less um, terrified of these conditions and more feeling some kind of community power in the face of really um, difficult times. You have a book forthcoming this month called 
building solidarity during this crisis and the next what next are you mean things are going to get worse before they get better yeah i think that you know right now we're seeing an explosion of the idea of mutual aid as kind of more mainstreaming more media are covering which is great a lot more people are plugging into mutual aid projects and i think part of why that's important is not just because of the pandemic but because i think we're going to be seeing um, more and more effects of global climate change um, impacting um, all of us and creating worse disasters. And I think we're going to keep seeing um, a growing economic crisis. So there's going to be more and more reasons why we need to rely on each other and create really good networks of sharing and supporting vulnerable people in our communities and having each other's backs because we're headed into some really scary times and we don't even know when this pandemic time will let up um, or how much worse it'll get. So I think that's part of why I think, you know, everything we do now sets us up. You know, you hear these stories, I've heard them again and again, maybe you have too, where people already had something going in their community. Like they already had a community garden and some, you know, solar panels and a daycare. And then when the big storm hit or the fire or the flood, they actually knew each other better and knew, oh, wait, there's elders living in these buildings on upper floors who we need to think about, or, oh, there's this family here that is definitely going to, you know, need some support, or, oh, actually, we, we know we've got some food going. Like, they had that stuff in place because they were doing mutual aid, and they were better prepared for the next disaster that came into their community. And I think that's really real, that the, the more we do this, the more responsive we become and the more skilled we become. When folks look around their neighborhoods and they see need for aid, how do they make mutual aid projects happen if there aren't any already in existence? That's a great question. Uh, there's a lot of people putting out really wonderful um, support for this. So one thing to do is there's an, an, a relatively new website called mutualaidhub.org where you can look and see if there are any that you don't know about that are in your area. Um, and also it's a good way to find out about other ones and see if maybe you want to ask them for any tips or look at their websites or their Facebook pages or whatever and see if they've got um, you know, kind of how to's, or maybe you want to copy their request for help form rather than reinventing the wheel, that kind of thing. I've posted a mutual aid toolkit that's, um, got a lot of resources like that at, um, bigdoorbrigade.com. So that's another place. Um, the book that you mentioned I'm coming out with is that, um, a book that's full of specifically tips around how to inside your mutual aid group try to organize things so that you're sharing, making decisions together. You're not going to get into a lot of conflict about money and resources, like just kind of looking at typical problems that face those groups and that can kind of undermine the work and how to um, set things up well so that uh, it can go as well as possible. Um, but there's just a lot of, I mean, I, I think people should just try stuff. Like if you're noticing a need, it's like, wow, there's people in my community who don't have warm clothes in the winter. There's people in my community who are, you know, there's a lot of evictions happening. Like, you know, there's kind of a lot of childcare missing right now, whatever. There's so many places to start because unfortunately we live in a time of great inequality and great need. Um, it's pretty, you know, I think it just, it just starts with the relationships, just talking to each other and being like, what would be the most helpful thing right now in our building or in our neighborhood, or, or maybe you're in a particular sub part of a community in a city, like what's happening with other queer artists or what's happening with other parents with autistic kids or whatever groups you're, naturally organically and i think that it's good to start where you are that's usually where we have the most information dean spade associate professor at seattle university school of law and founder of the sylvia rivera law project thanks for talking with us thanks for sharing so nice to meet you thank you so much The movement against racism and police brutality has gone global, with protests spreading outside the Anglophone world, from Brazil to Japan and everywhere in between. Maybe most importantly, solidarity from and with the African continent itself has grown in what the Advocacy Network for Africa calls a renewed season of active Pan-African solidarity. Chris Banger-Drowns has more. A group of African nations last month called on the United Nations to set up an inquiry into racism in the United States at the urging of George Floyd's brother. While the resolution eventually passed by the Human Rights Council fell short of what some organizations had wanted, it does represent a renewed Pan-African solidarity. The Reverend Dr. Angelique Walker-Smith is a rotational convener for the Advocacy Network for Africa. 
and she explains what is historic about the action at the UN. Well, in terms of the formal calling of this moment, that is historic, to call all of the UN to this moment. So I think it's fair to say that African nations have been historically sensitive with the Pan-African lens. I mean, the African Union is actually representative of that, where there's now officially the sixth region, which includes the African diaspora in its actual framework. So I think that lens has always been there, but it's extraordinary that in this moment that they literally called for all of the nations to come together for a hearing around this moment. So it was very significant in that regard. And what do you think prompted them to do this at this point? I think there are a couple of things. I think one is that the, the African Union has been working so very hard to make sure that the Pan-African lens of all of those of African identity and descent have been a part of a formulation of AU and working into that moment within the last 10 to 15 years in some renewed kinds of ways. But I also think that the issues uh, around police brutality uh, and a lot of other issues that we can name of disgruntlement um, have come to fore in the global space. So this becomes a trigger, not only in the domestic space, but then in the global space. And so there's alignment and synergy and compassion around all of those related uh, to the history of being of African identity. So I think it's coupled with both of those things. You said that the African Union has created a, a formal uh, recognition of the diaspora within its organization. How does that play out? How is the diaspora represented and, and how does it act within the African Union? So that conversation has always been there. I mean, even from the beginning of the African Union, when you had people like uh, W.E. Du Bois and others who were part of the genesis of the whole movement uh, coming out of the Manchester meetings in the early 1900s all the way up until you get to the 50s, 60s, and then 70s and the independence movements of the continent. So those conversations have always been there. That's the, that's the legacy. That's the long-term trajectory. However, to formalize the uh, relationship with the diaspora in the actual structures of the AU, uh, that's taken place within more recent times. And so I think that it goes all the way back to the history, but then it comes into this moment where we just see more and more synergy that's been built up over the years uh, since those earlier days. And are there concrete actions that the movement in the United States is calling for in terms of Africa, for example, is, is there advocacy for uh, withdrawal of US troops from Africa or increased uh, financial aid to African countries? Well, I mean, I think that there's actually advocacy to increase humanitarian aid on the continent of Africa and other places uh, globally in the Pan-African community. I also think that there are any number of issues relative to brutality and violence, period, uh, being an issue not only in the U.S., but for people of African identity globally. So, yes, I, I, I see where there is, um, there's been synergy with the plight of people of African descent. I think one of the best illustrations of where this is coming together in very important ways is the United Nations International Decade in Solidarity with People of African Descent. Um, we're in the mid-season mid of that decade right now. Um, and the hearings and the conversations that have happened in that space uh, has actually begun a, been a rallying point of how it is both public policy, story, uh, advocacy has come together in that space. Those hearings and those conversations have been, I think, vital to the ways in which people think about how we do that going forward. How has the coronavirus pandemic shaped how African nations view themselves and their interrelationship? Is there more or less collaboration in the face of this pandemic? There's no question about it. I mean, they're the same kinds of inequities we see with people of African descent and then also uh, Latinx uh, communities who are disproportionately affected in the U.S. context. It's the same narrative as we see that uh, on the continent of Africa. I mean, th these, these structural inequities are playing out in the global space as well as in the domestic space. So COVID-19, again, when you think about the disparities uh, around class, 
and economic uh, divides, um, you, you have similar concerns that, are, that, that emerge around healthcare uh, and um, prevention of disease and engagement of remedies uh, uh, for disease. So it, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative that is, that is uh, related uh, in the global space as well as in the domestic space. And, and we're very concerned, and this is one of the, the pieces that we're concerned to advocate for is how it is we get more support uh, in, from the United States as well as in the global community around supporting um, uh, places where those inequities uh, exist. Lastly, what is the Advocacy Network for Africa doing to bolster this renewal of Pan-African activity and how could our listeners support that work? Well, we're so glad you asked. So Anna is a, is a, um, a, a collaboration, I would say, of various uh, organizations and individuals who come together because they're concerned about advocacy for Africa and the Pan-African um, direction. So the happy news is there are different groups and, and different individuals who are advocating for the interests of that agenda. Um, we have a whole advocacy uh, agenda around uh, COVID, getting uh, humanitarian support uh, from our government to, uh, to Africa for COVID-19. That's a primary concern we have. Uh, we also have concerns that intersect with other economic concerns relative to people of, of African identity. But I would say for this moment, I really want to push out the, the COVID-19 advocacy that we're doing um, uh, to bring resources and to come alongside of um, the, the communities, particularly on the continent of Africa, but then also to say that this moment uh, around violence um, that's been put upon people of African identity uh, is also a concern we have, which is articulated in our statement. I think the statement gives even more clarifying responses to uh, what our, uh, our agenda is. But those two things clearly are front and center in the work that we're doing. Uh, we are concerned about debt uh, relief uh, and also um, so debt ca cancellation. Um, so, if, but if you look into our statement, I think that um, it, it will tell you more. I, I think wherever people are, it, you know, whether they're related to ADNA or not, wherever they are, I think for people to really affirm that there is a relationship between people of African descent in the US and around the world and with Africa. And when we make those kind of global connections, we can be more systematic and coherent in our approaches to do more to um, identify a better world. Uh, so I would like to really encourage all of us to understand that we are connected. This global space does matter. And the, the Pan-African lens lends itself to particularly when we look at people of African descent or African identity, whatever that description may be, um, that everyone might want to really think about how they see the total picture, not just the domestic picture, but the global picture, because we all belong to this global economy and this one humanity. The Reverend Dr. Angelique Walker-Smith, rotational convener for the Advocacy Network for Africa. You can read Adna's statement at allafrica.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Banger-Drowns. Now's the time for WPFW's summer membership drive, and we're inviting you to be a contributor to this station at this time. Our drive got started over the weekend with phenomenal success to all the programs on the air. We want to match that success with your contribution to Monday Morning QB right now. Our goal is $500. Please call 202-588-9739-1800-222-9739. Go online to WPFWFM.org. No contribution is too large. No contribution is too small. But please, give a contribution now. If you give a $40 contribution, you can get a WPFW Jazz and Justice face mask. 
please give now, support Monday Morning QB, this fledgling program that's growing up right before your eyes with your support. 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739, but contribute now. While older generations have borne the medical brunt of the coronavirus pandemic, economic pain isn't concentrated the same way. Young people whose lives had already stalled because of the financial crisis over a decade ago are now facing down the barrel of an even worse economic recession. To learn more, we asked resident young people. Monday morning QB reporters Amara Evering and Chris Banger drowns to share their thoughts and experiences. Their conversation ranged from immediate coronavirus-related concerns to the pernicious impacts of racism to long-term views of the economy. Here are some excerpts. So I, this is definitely something that I'm very nervous about. One, I'm living at home at the moment. I had to leave my apartment in Atlanta um, to come back here because I couldn't sustain that lifestyle um, during the pandemic, um, which is it's sad. It's sad. Um, but with everything going on, I don't, I don't know. Like right now, I definitely don't know if I'm making enough money to like pay rent and live comfortably. And I think it's a trade-off because you can live comfortably. I think you could maybe live comfortably and do a job and do a few jobs that you hate and be tired all the time and be upset. Um, but it's another thing to like do something that has something to do with what you're educated in or what your interests are in and still make a good amount of money um, to not be starving. And I feel like I see a lot of my friends, if they're moving out, they're not living comfortably right now. Um, so it's like sacrificing independence for comfortability, sacrificing independence for working a job that you don't really like yeah i mean it's it's tough because i feel like i i feel lucky for having a job during covid i don't feel like i can save but i feel like that's the case for a lot of like folks our age we're being hit with uh student loan costs that are higher than the previous generation living costs that are higher than the previous generation medical costs that are higher than the previous generation so i personally am and i'm like making it on my own and i'm lucky to have graduated a couple of years before COVID hit so that i could kind of get my footing a little bit and, and you know find a place to live and get a little bit of savings up but you know to be honest that first stimulus helped me out big time because all of it went to taxes like i owed a thousand dollars in in taxes and and um that whole that, that first stimulus check went all the way to taxes for me so i'm, I'm glad that happened and that's so I'm, I'm really hopeful they they get a second stimulus check out at some point but the way things are looking it's not that's not going to happen anytime soon when there's a economic crisis in the early portion of a person's career, that person's career suffers in the long run. Um, and so entire generations or our entire generation is going to suffer for having been hit with both the 08 crisis and then this COVID recession back to back and being hampered with uh, limited upward mobility. So I, I am worried about the long run, even if I'm you know, somewhat stable right now with the, with the job that I'm able to pay rent on and stuff like that. I, I don't want to have poor credit. We have other expenses. We have other things to pay for um, as young people. And um, I think finding a stable job is it's like such a necessary thing because if we don't, I don't know, if we're not financially okay, it, it kind of makes our next 10 years. Like, I don't, I don't want to be in debt. I don't want to be unable to like buy a condo or buy something in the next 10 years and I have to pay rent and then have my rent go up and then, you know, have something else happen to, with the economy and then all of this stuff. I like what you were saying because it reminds me of this, this concept of like fit in the labor market, right? Where like workers find jobs that match their skill sets or match their interests. And that's good on like two levels, right? It, it's good on the sense that a worker finds something that they're interested in and find valuable and, and find fulfilling and they're feeling satisfied. And, you know, there's, uh, psychological benefits to that. But then there's also benefits to the broader economy when you have workers who match their skill sets with jobs, right, that, that require their certain skill sets. And when we have a whole generation that's being motivated, not necessarily by finding jobs that meet their interests or their skill sets, but finding jobs simply to pay off their debt or simply to make it by, you're, you're losing that fit. And so there's, there's going to be long-term economic implications for 
a labor market that doesn't incentivize or doesn't give people the space to find jobs that, that match their interests. You're going to have people that are skilled in, in one area, but are working in another area. But we've, we've lost something valuable as a, as a society when somebody trained to be a psychologist isn't working as a, psycho, as a psychologist, in, a, in addition to like the personal mental health toll that, that takes on the person who isn't doing work that they find fulfilling. This is kind of like an extreme statement, but when I, um, there is this thing where I went to with John Lewis for his comic book. I don't know. He has a comic book. Yeah, like the, the graphic novel. It's, it's March, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The person who designed the graphic novel, he was speaking. He was like, you know, this generation has become, a gen this is an extreme statement, has become a generation of indentured servants to their student loans. As in, we're always in this position of finding labor, um, sometimes labor that we don't want to do. Um, to pay off debt that we've accumulated for whatever credential or accolade, thinking that we're going to um, get better, like, employment. And it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a catch-22 in that way, being somebody who's, like, a recent graduate, someone who's, like, educated. I think there's also elements of systematic racism within our housing structure that we as young people still have to deal with. I know that when I was apartment hunting with my sister, a lot of the housing, so she was looking at housing um, downtown and um, in areas that were predominantly black that were being gentrified and had these mega, you know, condo structures, whatever. And the listings online were much lower than the listings when they came and saw us, that they, the numbers that they gave us. And, you know, a, there's just there's so many layers into being a young person trying to get housing trying to get decent housing I know my my sister was like are there any affordable units um, because all new buildings in DC should have affordable units um, and he was like well you have to check with section 8 and we were just like this man <laughs> this man that is fine um, but so there's like there are other components um to that the lasting impact of things like redlining like you you bring up racial disparity in and home ownership and that contributes to like this disparity in how much what you know parents can help their kids help youth these days get through tough times right where like white parents might be more equipped than black parents are to help their children get through uh, like this recession and and stay on their feet or stay in their homes or stay in the, the areas that they went to college in for example so it's this sort of crisis can only exacerbate previous inequities in in wealth and home ownership for sure i know that at least in my mom's case it was more of a um she did not want to work for somebody else i think that kind of speaks to what some people have to people of color have to go through in some work environments they don't want to answer to somebody who one might pay them less and think that they could get away with it um have to go through constant microaggressions. I mean, things like being the only black person in the room, you, you don't really wanna, it, it's something that is exhausting. And so it, it kind of has built this whole, like huge thing of black entrepreneurship. And I guess some of us don't even realize that a lot of our, our like motivation to become independent and, and removed is because we don't want to be involved in this system that is like always degrading us and we feel like we're still being exploited. I think it's interesting that you said that uh, your mom, but I, I assume like a lot of entrepreneurs start business, like start their own businesses because they don't want to work for somebody else. And I think that's, that's true across the board. Like for people who have the means or not have the means to start a business is that like, you don't want to work for somebody. You, you don't want your work to be dictated by somebody else. And so I think it, maybe this is just semantical, but I think instead of an economy where people work for another person, we should think of, of, a, of an economy and try to imagine a new way of organizing an economy in which people work with one another rather than for one another, right? Where there's nobody dictating what somebody else does, but rather cooperatively deciding what we should make or should do as a society. And I think, I think the answer to that is a combination of a, a broader socialist system where needs are met uh, but also a, a sort of more microcosmic cooperative system where 
workers have a say in their day-to-day work life and have a have a ownership stake in the businesses for for which they work. I greet you in the name of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. You may ask, what organization is that? It is for me to inform you that the Universal Negro Improvement Association is an organization that seeks to unite into one solid body the 400 million Negroes of the world, to link up the 15 million Negroes of the United States of America with the 20 million Negroes of the West Indies, the 40 million Negroes of South and Central America, with the 280 million Negroes of Africa for the purpose of bettering our industrial, commercial, educational, social, and political conditions. As you are aware, the world in which we live today is divided into separate race groups and distinct nationalities. Each race and each nationality is endeavoring to work out its own destiny to the exclusion of other races and other nationalities. We hear the cry of England for the Englishman, of France for the Frenchman, of Germany for the German, of Ireland for the Irish, of Palestine for the Jews, of Japan for the Japanese, of China for the Chinese. We of the Universal Negro Movement Association are raising the cry of Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. There are 400 million Africans in the world who have Negro blood coursing through their veins. And we believe that the time has come to unite these 400 million people for the one common purpose of bettering their condition. The great problem of the Negro for the last 500 years has been that of this unity. No one or no organization ever succeeded in uniting the Negro race. But within the last four years, the Universal Negro Movement Association has worked wonders in bringing together in one fold four million organized Negroes who are scattered in all parts of the world being in the 48 states of the American Union, all the West Indian Islands, and the countries of South and Central America and Africa. These 4 million people are working to convert the rest of the 400 million that are all over the world. And it is for this purpose that we are asking you to join our ranks and to do the best you can to help us to bring about an emancipated race. If anything praiseworthy is to be done, it must be done through unity. And it is for that reason that the Universal Negro Improvement Association calls upon every Negro in the United States to rally to its standards. We want to unite the Negro race in this country. We want every Negro to work for one common object, that of building a nation of his own on the great continent of Africa. That all Negroes all over the world are working for the establishment of a government in Africa means that it will be realized in another few years. We want the moral and financial support of every Negro to make the dream a possibility. Already, this organization has established itself in Liberia, West Africa, and is endeavoring to do all possible to develop that Negro country to become a great industrial and commercial commonwealth. Pioneers have been sent by this organization to Liberia, and they are now laying the foundations upon which the 400 million Negroes of the world will build. If you believe that the Negro has a soul, if you believe that the Negro is a man, if you believe that Israel was endowed with the senses commonly given to other men by the Creator, then you must acknowledge that what other men have done, Negroes can do. We want to build up cities, nations, governments, industries of our own in Africa, so that we'll be able to have a chance to rise from the lowest to the highest positions in the African Commonwealth. That was the voice of Marcus Garvey in a rare recording speaking in 1921. The Right Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey was born on this date in 1887 in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica. 100 years ago, he went on to build the largest black movement in U.S. history, the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, with more than a half million active participants. And he introduced the Pan-African red, black, and green flag. Garvey's birthday and the anniversaries of dozens of other births and momentous events in U.S. history this month have led us to start calling this Black August, just like February grew to become Black History Month after Dr. Carter G. Woodson 
called for the observance of a Negro History and Achievement Week from February 11th to the 17th in 1926 because the birthdays of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln were both during that week. Some of the notable events and births in August include August 7th, 1970, when 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson invaded the California courthouse and took a judge hostage in an effort to free his brother, Soledad III inmate, George Jackson. August 21st, 1971, when George Jackson was murdered by prison guards at San Quentin Penitentiary in what they labeled as a botched escape attempt. And August 21st, 1831, the Nat Turner Slave Rebellion in Southampton, Virginia. Dozens of immortal black musicians were born in August, including Louis Armstrong on August 4, 1901, Abby Lincoln on August 6, 1930, Count Basie on August 21, 1904, Oscar Peterson on August 15, 1925, Percy Mayfield, the Poet Laureate of the Blues on August 12, 1920, Jimmy Witherspoon on August 8, 1923, John Lee Hooker on August 22, 1917, Wayne Shorter on August 25, 1933, Branford Marsalis on August 26, 1960, Lester Young, the President, on August 27, 1909, Charlie Yardbird Parker on August 29, 1920, Dinah Washington on August 29, 1924, and, of course, Michael Jackson on August 29, 1958. Finally, on August 16, 2018, Aretha Franklin passed away, which brings to mind the African proverb, one is born, one dies, the land increases. close to the end of this program so please please we ask you now you have just moments to go to give a contribution and support monday morning qb this new program that's been on the air just over a year at 89.3 fm and we've grown each membership drive with your support we're asking for your support now help us reach our goal of 500 dollars 202-588-9739-1800-222-9739 give your support Support this journalism project that is so special, that is so important here at 89.3 FM. 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. We cannot continue to maintain this important radio service at 89.3 FM without your support. You've always been there for us, so please be there for us now. Give a contribution, 202 202- 588-9739-1800-222-9739 or go online to WPFWFM.org. Don't forget, if you give $40 or more, you can get a WPFW face mask, jazz and justice, and proudly show your support of 89.3 FM. Call now, support WPFW, especially support the Monday Morning QB, 202 588 
9739 9739 wpfwfm.org Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker Drowns, Amara Evering and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. Please, please stay home, stay safe, mask up, and don't forget to contribute to WPFW now. Thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.